Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A warm welcome to everybody to another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Joining me today are Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Chris Bloomstrand uh, couldn't be here today. He will rejoin us, I think, in two weeks. Uh, he's uh, got a little bit of a busy period here, but uh, we have a great discussion. Uh, Phil will go first, and uh, and then we'll go to Elliot. I look forward to uh, what you guys have prepared for today and uh, look forward to, to a nice uh, chat here. So, Phil, I'll go to you first. Uh, take it away. Sure. Thanks, John. So, I thought as a discussion topic for this week, um, I, I stole this from a bunch of people I've seen kind of conducting this this discussion in real time in public or in semi-public. And uh, it's basically just trying to focus on what sorts of ideas, what sorts of effects from the pandemic um, will prove to be permanent or semi-permanent, meaning in, in my working definition of it, that they'll last beyond maybe the next three or four or five years. Or so what sorts of shifts are really going to stay with us? I do subscribe to the belief that this has been kind of a generational moment and we'll look back on this 5 10 20 years from now as a pre and post moment you know maybe even more so than than a lot of things we remember like the financial crisis or 911 so i really do think it's that important but what i think is maybe uh, more interesting more nuanced and and certainly more applicable to a lot of investing outcomes is you have to be able to answer the question i just posed which is we're seeing massive amounts of disruption and change right now, but which ones of those things are actually going to drive behaviors that that stay with us versus which ones are going to fade into the background, hopefully in a year or two as things get back to normal. Um, so I've made a list of things that I think are important and interesting. I've kind of sorted them based on my own responses. So I'll throw a couple of them out and then I want to hear from each one of you guys what you think and and push back and, and tell me where you think you're wrong. So, and part of what spurred this um, thought was earlier this week, I saw an article that pointed out that new business formation, um, at least in the United States, is actually up. It's actually growing at its highest rate in a decade. So that's new entities being formed, applications for employer identification numbers were at their highest rate through, I think, the end of July that they've been at, at any point in the year in, in at least a decade. Now, that's still not enough to make up for all the failures that we're seeing this year. So you're still having a net impact um, that's negative to the business community for sure. But I, my thought there is that um, that is probably temporary and that we're not going to see any sustained shift toward entrepreneurship and small business. I think you're still going to have this effect that big companies get bigger. Um, I think all the demographic effects, the technology effects, all the things that have been really driving that um, are, are likely to stay in, in place. And so you're seeing this kind of temporary one-off boost to, to entrepreneurship and new business formation really kind of being done out of necessity. People that have been laid off, people that have been kind of forced into this. Um, but wonder what you guys think about that. Yeah, I uh, personally, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, when something 
drastically shakes up the world, people adapt and react to it. And one of the natural consequences of this stay-at-home environment is a lot of people couldn't do what they've done on a normal basis. So you try and experiment with new things. And that's really good insofar as, you know, some people are going to figure out something new that really works and run with it. Um, But I I kind of think the effect of starting new things is far more temporal than permanent. And I think, you know, you kind of referenced it, but in this environment, um, it's tended to reward those with immense scale already. So like the big are getting bigger and things that are small tend to be hurt. Like so small Main Street businesses have been disproportionately hurt compared to like large big boxes. You know, if you are Walmart, Uh, You get to be open as an essential store because you sell groceries, though you could still sell, you know, random tchotchkes, school supplies and, you know, uh, clothing, whereas the average Main Street clothing store had to close in some of these places. So, like, there's definitely an asymmetry in how how the rules of lockdown have impacted big versus small. Um, So, yeah, I'm inclined to believe that this is, you know, a temporal temporary shift towards entrepreneurialism, but it's, you know, also part of human nature. So anytime we have something really big, really calamitous, that's how uh, people are going to respond. Um, yeah, so, I, I agree. And the, where I was kind of going with this, where you were taking it um, without maybe even realizing it is that, you know, one of the big pushbacks, and I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to this line of thought, is that you look at some of these world-beating, gigantic businesses right now, and you'd expect the law of large numbers to kick in at some point and the growth rate to eventually slow down. It doesn't seem to be reflected in the price this year that you're seeing, but this would be one way that you know those companies could potentially be slowed down as if you saw a massive wave of kind of new smaller companies starting up. And again, it's, it's not clear even what kind of companies are included in this data. It could be lots of little bakeries and restaurants. Um, but uh, my, my strong belief would be that you know, with 70 or 80% odds that we'll look back five years from now and the, the big will have gotten bigger and we won't have seen any sustained massive uptick in uh, in entrepreneurship. John, do you, do you disagree or? I, I mostly agree. Um, I do think a lot of it is just out of necessity. People, um, you know, not being able to go to work or getting laid off. I do think there's been this underlying trend, albeit from a really low base of, you um, so-called digital nomads, kind of people who um, figure out a way to to be, you know, small entrepreneurs online. And I could see some of that being pulled forward. Um, You know, that's a growth trend for sure. And uh, just like, you know, some of the online adoption uh, being pulled forward, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of an effect there. But for the most part, I do think it's temporary. Yeah, Yeah, one thing I'd reference anecdotally that I think matters, and I think John kind of tapped into it there. I know a lot of people who are like, you know, I wasn't happy with my life and I wasn't in a place where I could consider changing anything until the world changed. And so therefore today I am making these drastic changes. So there's definitely something to that element of it too, where certain people like have seen opportunities in this digital nomad landscape to kind of attack a certain... Uh, line of business that before you know the whole world changed wasn't really uh, practical for them to consider. 
Yep. Yeah, interesting. And that's actually the, a good segue into the next one, which is this notion of either digital nomads or, or permanently working from home and, and parlaying that into the exodus from cities. I tend to believe pretty strongly, again, 70, 80% confidence that the working from home trend and the exodus from cities will be faded dramatically three to five years from now. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous when you see the article that got some attention a few weeks ago that New York City is dead forever or that everybody's basically going to work from a cabin in Wyoming or, or some nonsense like that. I mean, look, I do think you have massive problems in the short run, right? Particularly in some cities that have overbit, overbuilt their commercial real estate markets. New York City certainly has had a severe impact from, from this virus and, and will feel pain on multiple levels, including the, the fiscal fallout there. But you know, I actually looked up the data, which I thought were really interesting. You know, New York City's population was was basically flat for a couple of decades after World War II. You know, then we all know what happened in the 1970s. The population in New York City fell 10, 11, 12 percent for a decade there of the 1970s. And it really didn't have any big growth in, in resurgence in that population until after 9-11, when again, a lot of the popular narrative was that New York City was, you know, kind of past its prime. Likewise, London, um, inner London, was down almost 50% in population over the century ended in 2000, between 1901 and 2001. It was still down between 1950 and 2020. So over 70 years in London. And then greater London was basically flat since World War II. I think everyone would agree London's done okay. And you know New York's done okay over that period. So I, I just find this notion that people will no longer congregate in or flock to big cities. I mean, the, these cities still contain a massive amount of the economic engine that drives the world. They have all of the cultural institutions, a lot of the great you know, resources that people need, and people just naturally want to be together. Um, and I think that applies to, to the work from home phenomenon as well. I think people like being together. I think people need that social interaction. I think there's a business purpose to be served from it too. So I could definitely see a world where um, there is more remote work. I could see a world where instead of commuting a long distance five days a week, you only do it three or four days a week. But um, I would drastically distance myself from these pronouncements that you know work from home is going to mean the end of commercial real estate or that we're going to be at 50% occupancy levels forever or that New York City's dead or anything like that. Yeah, I'm a little, uh, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of, because the way I see things, I believe there's going to be a pretty large exodus from New York City. It's underway. I see it where I am in Fairfield County, Connecticut, like the moving trucks are coming in pretty regularly. Um, the beauty of that is the biggest problem New York City had faced and a big part of like, you know, a great story about Brooklyn's renaissance and the outer boroughs uh, rising, but really the driving force there was New York City had gotten so freaking expensive Right. Um, that the typical person, the typical young person who made the city so vibrant in the first place couldn't afford to live there anymore. Um, so as these people uh, who have the means are leaving New York City for the suburbs, um, they're doing so quickly. They're driving down prices. I think it's opening the door for the next generation of young people who will shape the city to come in. Um, so I think it's both. I, th I think both sides are true. On work from home, from you know, I get a lot of different answers, but like having gone from working from home for a long time to having had an office for a year and a half, and now today is literally the first day that I'm not paying rent again. Um, so, you know, it feels like a weird day after all. Um, 
it's, uh, I think, going to be pretty nuanced. I think the reality is neither more work from home nor less. It's going to be employers are a little more willing to give their employees some leash to work from home a greater portion of days than before. Um, and I think that's the case because not only have employees proven that without constant oversight, they could still get their work done, but also people are going to be far better equipped for it now, right? Like in the past, you might have had a pretty poor setup for it. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily as an employer expect people to be uh, capable of doing everything, but now, you know, that's no longer the case. Uh, but I do think people, you know, especially in creative fields have to go to work. Like you have to see people, you have to like butt heads and, you know, refine your, uh, your ideas. And, um, I think, you know, there's no way around that reality. Um, perhaps in certain kinds of like highly automated or siloed fields, work from homes a little more permanent, but by and large, I don't think it's going to be like this sweeping societal change. All right. Sounds like I haven't generated too much disagreement so far. What about you, John? So, you know, I do, I think companies in terms of the work from home will just give employees more options. And I do think that'll result in just the utilization of the office space going down. And then over time, you know, companies probably needing a bit less uh, office space. In terms of cities, I, I also think, you know, for the most part, um, you're not going to see a big change there longer term. I do think some of the excesses on the edges will be curbed. You know, so San Francisco real estate prices getting out of hand, you know, that's clearly now um, going the other way. And, um, you know, those kinds of effects, you know, if you think back to Tokyo real estate in the late 80s, it was just ridiculous. And, you know, the event we had this year is the kind of catalyst that could kind of put an end to a, a bubble of that sort. And uh, we're probably seeing some of that playing out. Uh, but I think longer term in terms of cities versus rural, uh, there are probably even bigger trends that are driving this um, than anything COVID related. I mean, I'm thinking of just where the workforce overall is going. And as um, you know, technology keeps marching forward, there's going to be just a ton of labor that's undifferentiated and, uh, and really just uh, commoditized. And uh, that labor is going to have a hard time finding work anywhere other than in cities. So I think this mega trend uh, of cities getting bigger could even continue for quite a while. Yeah, that's well said. There's a lot of nuance in there, so I didn't really define the question as tightly as I probably should have, but I think all those points are, are, are thoughtful and valid. So, you know, a couple other ones that probably won't generate much uh, controversy. I think you've seen it certainly reflected in the numbers, both the, the data, the sales data, the operating data, and the market valuations of e-commerce continuing to take share from physical. I think that would probably get near unanimous agreement, the digitization of, of everything and, and that pull on the economy. Likewise, what do you guys think about the effects of this, you know, massive shock to the economy um, worldwide and individually in, in unique countries and, and what that means for monetary policy and interest rates? So if I were to say, you know, let's say five years from now, do you think we've escaped, you know, one and a half percent on the 10-year U.S. Treasury? I mean, or or put differently, are we are we kind of stuck 
in this lower, very lo- the very lower reaches of the curve here for for the better part of the next decade. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the uh, challenging situations of it all is we were just nearing some degree of the upper end of where the economy was comfortable with rates going for the aftermath of the great financial crisis. And, you know, like even before um, COVID, we had hit a pause and the debate was, you know, whether, you know, how far down uh, this uh, cycle of uh, rate cuts would take us after having hit that first peak. And so, you know, we never truly got to kind of complete that experiment before COVID. There are two things I struggle with. One is the companies who are beneficiaries here have the resources to completely Um, reinvent and invest in their capabilities to adapt to the new world and to accommodate new volumes. Um, But some of the old world stuff is going to be left with a whole lot of slack. Um, So on the one hand, you're well greased and things should move along rather smoothly. On the other hand, you're going to have, you know, like real uh, oversupply. And so I don't know how those competing forces shake out, but considering we finally will have a better demographic tailwind, starting, you know, next year, maybe. I'm inclined to be an optimist and say by five years, we get back to like whatever the normal was we were approaching before COVID, like in the immediate preceding time period. Interesting. And I'm I'm certainly not capable of putting a uh, precise forecast on the 10-year treasury, uh, even five days out, let alone five years out. So that was not really the point. I think that was was well said. John, do you think we'll see any big Shake up there, or? well, I, you know, it's probably beyond the scope of this discussion to really examine this issue because so much goes into, um, you know, ten year, and I, even you know, if you look even further out, like thirty year interest rates. Right now, there seems to be a consensus that if the economy is weak, those rates go down. Uh, we're certainly seeing it in Europe even more than in the U.S. I mean, the thirty year interest rate in Europe on in euros is actually uh, slightly negative right now. It's uh, minus 0.1% on the 30 year. And, uh, and that just seems ridiculous. If you if you think about, um, you know, the monetary stimulus that's being put in, and whether you would actually tie up your money for 30 years. I mean, this this is literally investing a thousand euros today to in 2050 get less than a thousand back in nominal euros um, I'm not sure anyone sane would actually make that bet so but that's kind of the perception because they're slack because the economy is weak and so forth and I I think people forget that you have historically tons of examples of very weak economies with runaway inflation. I mean, Venezuela doesn't have a strong economy. You don't need a strong economy to have inflation. And we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with these monetary experiments, with the Fed uh, expanding its balance sheet. That's clearly monetizing the debt. And um, yeah, the verdict's out. But I do think there's a very good chance that this long-term trend that we've had since basically the early 80s of, of long-term rates coming down, that that's going to reverse at some point. Interesting. Yeah, so that's that's well said as well. And I think that's where it gets really interesting is if you think that does ever reverse, even on a 
on a medium term kind of time horizon, there's plenty of opportunity out there, whether it's in financials or otherwise. If you don't, it gets really hard to own some things in that world, right? And likewise, I mean, I think a, a corollary to the same debate that is almost infinitely uh, complex is is what happens to the price of oil and gas. I mean, as you've seen so much demand destruction with such a lockdown of travel this year, um, at the same time that you have an maybe an accelerating trend away from those fossil fuels. But at the same time, you've had a massive amount of supply come out of the market. So what happens over the next three to five years there? I mean, likewise, I just kind of shake my head. I, I certainly wouldn't want to bet on significantly higher prices. But, you know, as the old saying goes, I mean, the, the, the cure for low prices is low prices. So maybe that'll prove true again here. I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm remember um, looking at natural gas uh, some years ago, and that was exactly what uh, the um, CEO of uh, MCF, ticker MCF, was saying. It never came to pass for natural gas. And um, so that's a really tough one. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, you know, at what point does oil and gas become like thermal coal, where basically it doesn't really matter how much supply destruction you have because the demand destruction is even greater and it just becomes an untenable investment area. But, you know, sentiment is probably so bad in that space right now that there are opportunities, but are they really long-term opportunities? That's the question. And there's one more confounding factor, which is that oil has never been a truly efficient market. You have big countries keeping supply off to kind of defend price. So like the incentive to keep supply off to defend price goes away if price is just kind of low with uh, declining demand. Yeah. And the minute you have a price spike, let's say, it can be really temporary because a lot of this supply that's shut in now or just struggling and, and would come off could easily you know, ramp back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple other ones uh, before we move on that I think are, are interesting and worth thinking about that are a little narrower and maybe easier to define and get our get our arms around is uh, business travel. So it's kind of the flip side of what we argued a minute ago about working from home and my thought that, you know, there'll be some reduction there, but we'll get back to 80 or 90% of normal maybe. Uh, if normal was 2019, you know, three to five years from now, we'll get back to 80% of that that level. Um, in terms of in the office work, I'm not so sure on business travel. I just think if you look at the numbers and look at the the high frequency business traveler, the the traveler who spends the majority of the week on the road, the 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 number of trips that are comprised of sort of one off internal functions, sales meetings, one on one meetings that can have proven to all be very easily replaced by a 30 minute, one hour, even a multi hour video conference. Um, I just think a lot of that is probably going to prove to be permanent. So um, it makes it really difficult to start handicapping the odds of things like airlines and hotels and and various components of the hospitality and travel sectors where I think leisure travel will probably come back and be as strong as it ever was. I'm just not sure that some of those extremely frequent road warriors that were always traveling and really make up the vast majority of the profits in that ecosystem, I'm not sure they're going to come back to maybe... 60, 70, 80% of where they were on the high end before. 
Yeah, I really waver on this one. And it, my answer kind of depends on the day and what I'm thinking about and who I'm thinking about. And I, I, I don't think the answer is like, you know, um, I, I think it depends on whether you're speaking about one year post kind of return to normal, three years on or five years on. Yeah, I think I you're do, right. I think I was doing three to five because I think for the next 12 months, even the next 24 months, I think all bets are kind of off. So. Oh yeah, no, but I mean, even like from the point when you're talking about we get to normal, like oh, like okay. people like people don't feel the risk in their life because I, I do think the first year there's going to be a lot of pent up. Like we did handshake deals over Zoom, but we want to see each other, mm-hmm. sit down face to face, and flesh out certain um, yep. realities or, or good point yep. um, elements to the relationship. Beyond that, though, I do think there's like big risk for certain kinds of convention driven sales businesses. Um, I think, you know, just from talking to people uh, in different industries, uh, in B2B space and uh, certain kinds of advertisers, I've really gotten the impression people have gotten like a new leaner sales muscle going on where they're able to still generate and, and convert sales at a similar rate before so long as they're general, you know, consistent with what you'd expect in their business right now. Um, without having to do these kinds of conventions that are really quite expensive and cost a lot. Um, So if you're able to get the same volume of sales with spending a whole lot less, like why would you ramp it up? Um, You know, it's it's not a bad boost to margin. So I think it's not necessarily going to come from a lack of willingness to travel from employees. I think it's going to come from like a much more bottom line orientation at some of these companies who realize that they don't need that level of travel to convert to the, their desired level of, of sales. Um, so I, I really do think there's going to be some sort of like permanent decline in the number of people who travel. Um, but then again, I also do think that there are, I mean, you know, uh, I, I know plenty of them road warriors who are very eager to get back out there. Very eager. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I think where there's a high expense sensitivity, it's hard to make the case that you need all that all the travel that you had before Zoom and so forth. So I do think that's going to impact it. I wonder how much of the business travel had a social component as well. You know, those conventions, they become kind of social events and it's almost like rewarding an employee to uh, be able to go to something like that. So you know, to the extent that there's a social component, I think um, we will see uh, people traveling again. No, it's a fair point. There's definitely a social component. I don't think you can ignore that. That's definitely true. And then the last two that are that are somewhat related are that I would tend to believe that we will see a more or less permanent reordering of the global supply chains that I think a lot of people would argue got stretched too thin, had too many waypoints along the way, um, touched too many different geographies and became so hyper-efficient from an immediate working capital and margin perspective that they became unreliable and suboptimal in the grand scheme of things, whether that's things like uh, pharmaceutical ingredients or medical equipment or even just bigger bigger items that require so much uh, energy intensity to ship them around the world that I think you'll see uh, more or less a permanent reshoring 
closer to the to the end markets they spent implications are really massive in terms of capital spending and margins um, in both good ways and bad and the winners and losers that it's going to create. Um, and likewise, I think you're going to see a kind of a permanent reordering of the world's international relations along these these lines. I mean, I think you are already seeing, if not a partial reversal in attitude, but at least a somewhat of a slowdown in the globalization trends that you saw over the prior couple of decades. Um, and I think that's likely to at least be a three to five year kind of semi-permanent outcome from from the pandemic. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in critical areas, you're going to see uh, more redundancies built into the supply system. But on the flip side of that, I think you're also going to see, um, you know, especially where we're seeing from the COVID beneficiaries, like incredible rates of investment in uh, supply chain logistics and efficiencies. So they're going to get better at the last mile stuff too. So more redundancies on the big stuff, uh, bringing it together from around the world and more efficiency on the closer to the door kind of stuff. And I think, you know, that investment's really just starting now because some of it you couldn't even make during lockdowns or stay-at-homes and until certain supply shortages ended in their own rights. So I think that's going to have big ramifications for a lot of industries, for a lot of people, for, you know, how certain some countries and will, will benefit and others won't. So that's definitely one of the areas I've been thinking about a whole lot. Like, you know, it came up when we were talking about Nike last week. I, you know, I, it's an area that I'm really, really keen to. And, you know, I, I think you're really onto something there. Right on. So I'll be a little bit of a cynic and, and disagree just a little bit. Um, okay. Because I feel like if there's a profit motive, uh, you know, the people running these companies, they're still going to want to, get the last bit of juice out of the supply chains and they're not going to be the ones deciding that some country is risky politically and and could be a an adversary down the road and so forth i feel like that would have to be politically mandated in order to really stick and and you know that may happen but i i feel like you know, when you have a CEO from from HBS whose uh, bonus depends on uh, this year's profit, he's going to run the supply chain as efficiently as he can, and he's not going to be thinking about some potential pandemic uh, ten years from now or some other event that would require uh, a bigger cushion. I just feel I'm just a little bit more cynical there in terms of human nature when it comes to the profit motive, and uh, you know, you think about. Just other examples like why do people keep lending to Argentina after it's defaulted like two or three times? Somehow there's a short memory there. And I feel like with this kind of thing, there might be a short memory as well, unless there's really some, um, you know, geopolitical clashes that'll happen uh, that may kind of force uh, companies to adapt. Those are great points. And I I could well be... uh underestimating the impact of incentives, which are often the most important thing in any sort of calculation like this. And I do think there will be some mandates, either regulatory, legislative, uh, you know, some sort of top-down forcing mechanism that requires uh, some element of this. But I, you could very well be right. And, um, you know, maybe as a coda, if I can figure out how to how to do it easily, um, I'll put up some sort of uh, long bets or good judgment project style uh, format for this, and we can all put in our confidence and then 
you know, three to five years from now, whatever date we pick, we'd go back and calculate everybody's prior scores and see who got this right. This one would be, that one would be a tough one because, uh, and a couple of these would be tough because it'd be hard to really calculate them uh, numerically. But I, I'm with you, John. It, it's, that's a great point that, you know, that human history is so full of examples of people getting kicked in the teeth like this. And then, you know, some short time later, they forget about it and do it all over again. So we'll see. Yep. Well, I had two more. If I could add two more questions to this to keep it going a little bit, if you guys sure. don't mind, because I find this interesting and, you know, I figured uh, it would be helpful to come with a couple of my own. What, what do you guys Please. think? A game? Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, number one that I was thinking about um, before COVID, uh, it was getting pretty popular to think that with the rise of Uber and ride sharing, that the need for cars was going to decline in the foreseeable future. It was a very popular conversation that, you know, certain people will never need cars again. But I'm wondering what you what you guys think about the future of car ownership. Well, like, I mean, I guess you got to separate the U.S. and the rest of the world. But for the most part, for like the U.S. and the developed world, would you expect the uh, cars per household to stay the same, rise or decline over the next five years? Personally, I, I think I know a lot of people who are getting cars for the first time, like city people in particular, who had been pretty reliant on how simple it was to travel without having a car. There was no real friction anymore. But now you find yourself not necessarily wanting to be stuck if a lockdown hits, not necessarily fully trusting of the strangers whose company you'd be in very close quarters for ideal transmission. Um, and then, you know, uh, generally, uh, exodus from cities to burbs is pretty supportive of, of car ownership. So I'm somewhat sanguine on it, but I, you know, definitely find a lot of resistance on that. Curious what you guys think. I'll take somewhat of a cop out on this one and say that I don't think the virus will take whatever was going to happen five to 10 years from now and change it very much. So I don't. I've thought about this a lot. I, I've always been somewhat skeptical that you were going to be able to have enough uh, autonomous vehicle penetration into the non-big cities. So even out into the suburbs or particularly out in the more rural areas, I didn't see how that was going to work in the next, call it decade at least. Um, and I still don't think that'll have any impact here. To your point, there's been a huge surge in people buying cars this year for the first time. Um, and I think that makes all the sense in the world. And I think that impact will last at least into the you know next few years you know does it really persist 3 to 5 years from now i mean the benefits of you know ride sharing um, were pretty clear it may have been taken too far so it may have slowed down that that progress for sure but i i, I tend to think that if those were going to be replaced by roving fleets of autonomous vehicles that you dialed up on demand you know, in or around a city, I think that'll probably still happen on whatever time horizon. And I don't think the virus, in terms of what you said, which is driving the whole conversation right now, which is I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to share a ride with another person. I don't trust what's going on there. All that stuff is going to dominate for the next year or two, probably. Beyond that, I think it'll probably fade. Yeah, I agree with with Phil. I think, you know, in the short term, clearly, I much prefer to to drive instead of taking the bus or the train. So, uh, miles driven, probably going up uh, during the pandemic. Um, longer term, I think it's going to depend on how well um, 
this can be done in terms of autonomous driving. You know, are the are those applications going to be so good that you can uh, have a great experience? And you know, so we we don't know how long that's going to take. Uh, probably at some point it will happen, especially in more dense uh, areas. But you know, you take let's say Uber and and taxis. You know, Uber kind of expanded that market. Well, it didn't just take away from existing um, taxis, um, but actually grew the market. And I think somebody had a really good article on on that um, kind of how those kinds of startups can actually just grow the market size in a, in a huge way. And I think that would need to happen with autonomous cars, where basically it's, it's such a good user experience that you would uh, choose that over having your own vehicle. And uh, the hurdle is going to be greater the more uh, one drives, uh, you know, the more one needs a car. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely part of what I waver on, right? Like, you know, people like driving and all, but it, at the end of the day, if if driverless cars do make it that much easier and it's safe and it could be rolled out and scale, I mean, that's definitely going to change habits one way or another. But to answer um, your question, I think that's an important part of it is that, you know, car ownership per household. So I think regardless of my skepticism about applications outside of city cores, I do think if you get five years out from the pandemic, I do think you'll probably still see a decline in car ownership per household where you just have so many households right now that require one or two cars per household to be owned. And I think that number will come down from whatever it is today to something lower than that five years from now. Yeah, it's just been interesting seeing this surge in car sales while everyone's not, you know, I mean, a good chunk of the commuter base isn't commuting at all, right? So there there are other factors that people are considering than day-to-day utility for why they need a car. Um, one of the arguments I'd always contended is, um, you know, suburban families with kids, your car is another piece of storage, not just transportation. Like you have everything you need for various activities with you. It's hard to rely on, you know, a random uh, cube coming to pick you up, um, not knowing which materials you'll need for the next activity sort of thing. Um, Yep. I would uh, agree with that. It's certainly much easier to leave your stuff in the car than to always remember what to take with you. All right. One last thing to think about. So the next question I had, uh, my my last one on this topic, um, is somewhat similar. Um, and I wanted to ask you guys what you think about um, the trend in spend toward experiential over physical things. And so this was a huge trend heading, you know, basically for the last decade, really, out of the financial crisis into COVID. And, you know, obviously with stay-at-home orders, experiential spend gets curtailed meaningfully, though some of it did shift to stuff like outdoors. So a lot more spend on things to engage with the outdoors. So there's definitely like a place where things are experiential in their own sense, right? You buy a kayak, that's that's a little different than just buying a thing. Um, but I guess the, the question is like, you know, what happens with experiential uh, spend from here? I've kind of had this like working hypothesis that, you know, once this is over, we're going to experience something like the Roaring Twenties, where there's so much pent up, uh, like party-like emotion where people want to be incredibly social and want to be out there doing things after having, you know, nothing makes you want to do things more than not being able to do them. That, you know, we could have a pretty long uh, fueled um, 
you know, fun fest, but I'm curious what, what other people think, like, will experiential spend come back or will, will people, you know, kind of go back to kind of the more materialistic, uh, aughts, uh, trends. What do you think, John, you want to go first this time? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a great, uh, view on this, I guess. I, I, I personally would say it will come back in terms of experiential. You know, right now in the pandemic, it's been easy to buy stuff because that gets shipped shipped to your door. You don't have to worry about uh, getting infected. So I've probably ordered too much stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty eager to to do the experiential stuff again, to go to a soccer game, uh, you know, in Germany with my son, uh, with a full stadium and so forth. So I could definitely see it, but I don't know whether it's going to be a huge trend because you also got to consider people's ability to spend what's their disposable income. And I don't think those trends are that positive um, over the medium to long term. So I don't really know if people will have the means to, to spend a ton. Yeah, I think the data are interesting on this in that, you know, as soon as people had to cancel their trips and vacations and a lot of their experiential leisure spending this year, you saw that all pretty much get put into stuff. So they're going to Home Depot and and remodeling their homes and buying stuff on Amazon. Um, And I think that coincides with people kind of forcibly in many cases being, being shut out of the, you know, relatively small urban apartments into bigger uh, housing units elsewhere, so I, I think that's that's certainly true for now. I I think I, I would bet pretty strongly that once you get two three years out, uh, you you probably one see a snapback like you said, Elliot, and then two, I think you'll get right back on the the trend that was in place previously, away from buying flashy expensive objects and going more towards experiential. So that's certainly an area I've been looking to try to exploit is how do you take advantage of that, you know, take the near-term pain that's going to almost inevitably be there over the next 6, 12, hopefully not much longer months than that. But um, uh, I think that's just almost unavoidable. I think the the trends that were driving that are still very much in place. And I don't, I just don't see us pretty much any Western society, you know, reversing that experiential preference trend. Yeah, it seems like it's a generational force. Really yeah, does. I think that's right. Okay, great. Well, thanks. That was a great uh, discussion, guys. Um, Elliot, uh, why don't you take it away with your actual topic for the week? Okay, yeah. So I wanted to talk about one of my favorite setups. I think it's somewhat timely. And then I wanted to kind of open it up and hear from you guys if you had like you know, one setup that when you see, you tend to like it a lot. Um, the specific setup I want to talk about is uh, a name borrowed from fantasy baseball. It's called the post-hype sleeper. And I've defined like seven things to look for in a post-hype sleeper. So in baseball, um, what a post-hype sleeper is, is, <clears throat> excuse me, in fantasy baseball, it's a player who is a prospect with incredible hype who has a frustrating first year and is forgotten in his second year. And um, you could effectively buy on the cheap for uh, asymmetric upside. So, you know, I think that's something that tends to happen in the market a lot. So the seven things that kind of define a post-hype sleeper 
for me are a company with a big following and a lot of momentum based on what could be in the future. Number two is internal metrics of the company's performance continue moving in a positive direction, even when the stock price stalls. Um, so number three, despite intrinsic value rising, the pace of advance is slower than what investors were looking for or some kind of headwinds emerge. Number four is momentum and stock price evaporates and leads to a sharp rapid plunge in the share price. Five is the momentum overshoots to the downside while business performance continues moving forward, though never exactly gets uh, number six to never exactly gets to a deep value investment. Um, it too recently burnt growth in investors to get growth kind of multiples, and it's not cheap enough to to pull in uh, the value guys. So it's got no natural base. And then number seven is I I like looking for when um, they've leveled off into a range of apathy for an extended period of time. So typically, you know, the kinds of companies that this happens in, I really like to look um, for busted IPO setups, companies that IPO and then, um, you know, have a, a either waited too long to come public or just were priced way too aggressively uh, when, they act, when they went public um, and had set the bar so high that they have a hard time meeting it. Or really, you know, non-GAPS talked about this quite a bit in his, his newsletter, but this idea that companies kind of take a couple years to forge their identity and, and express who they are when they go public, that it's, you know, this natural act of turning over your investor base and really your ethos as a company. A lot of employees had waited for this moment to cash out their stock and move on. So there's just a whole lot of change going on. So change is one of those things I like to invest around. And in these kinds of situations, you end up with, you know, I think, uh, pretty good opportunities. I'd say at this point, a decent chunk of my book I'd define as at least when I commence the position, not necessarily today, but when I commence the position, by and large, I've, I've bought a lot of these post-type sleepers. And I think it's been a pretty lucrative area for me to look. And, you know, with a lot of IPOs going on right now, it's the reason why I'll learn about these IPOs. I don't have any interest per se in buying them because I don't have special relationships that I get these sweetheart prices. Congrats to uh, Mr. Buffett and team for for their awesome uh, score on Snowflake. But, you know, I don't have the same, same network and connections. Um, I got to wait for these companies to not work as public equities uh, for some period of time before I could step in. Um, so post-type sleeper, that's, uh, I'd say, my single favorite um, investment setup of them all. I'm curious if you know, this is something that you guys look at specifically, or, you know, really more curious what your favorite setup might be, like a certain kind of thing that when you see in the market, you want to want to jump. Yeah, I think this is a great topic. And, you know, it's almost too bad if anybody doesn't follow baseball or particularly fantasy baseball. I happen to love both baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm playing a couple of leagues and uh, it's just awesome. And in the, in the parallels to to this topic are crystal clear, as you said. And uh, I actually just pulled up a couple of articles that I read kind of religiously every spring. And, you know, they, they do the exact same thing. They take um, someone that has to have been ranked on their prior year list of the top 100 prospects. So baseball players that haven't yet reached the majors or have very limited experience in the majors. And they've had one or more failed stints at the major league level. So I think this is a similar to your busted IPO type of theory. Like th- these were guys that got at least some initial call up to the major leagues, but then got sent back down to AAA, which happens all the time. I mean, it happens because of injuries. It happens because of bad GM or managerial decisions. It happens because of playing time considerations and financial contracts and all kinds of stuff. So it's really not a very good indicator. Everybody loves to think of like the, you know, the superstar prospect that, you know, gets drafted straight out of high school and goes straight to the big leagues and never gets sent down. But the fact is that 
there are just aren't that many Mike Trouts out there. Um, there's Hall of Famers that take years and years and years to finally stick in the big leagues. And after that first year, you know, you may get a tiny sample size of 50 at-bats or 100 at-bats where it just doesn't go well and you get sent back down to the big leagues. But it really doesn't change the big picture very much, which I think is exactly your analogy here. So um, I would add to that a couple of things. Fallen Angels, which was an enormously profitable area of investing to exploit for many years, which is where you get kind of an arbitrary decision um, out of the rating agencies to downgrade a company, an issuer, a security, uh, and it creates kind of unnatural selling pressure uh, failed phase two, phase three, FDA clinical trials for, for pharmaceuticals, not an area that I exploit personally, but takes a very high level of expertise, but can be done just extraordinarily well. It's just awesome to see. And it's a huge area of inefficiency. Bankruptcies and forced selling are probably my single favorite area. Unfortunately, it's been very barren ground for the last, you know, seven, eight years, really, 10 years. Um, but, you know, you see this all the time where an otherwise good business has some unique problem that may or may not pertain to the underlying core commercial enterprise, a bad balance sheet, you know, a, a legal problem, some sort of one-off crazy exogenous shock. And so they get sent back down to the, something worse than the minor leagues. They get sent to bankruptcy court, but um, the underlying prospects are still there. You know, similar to what you said, busted IPOs maybe, um, or just, you know, sort of a secular disaster. I mean, if you look at some of the best businesses uh, and the best returning investments you could have made. I mean, post.com bust, you know, the NASDAQ peak of, of 2000 and then what happened in 2001 and in the 2002. And the businesses that had really already proven their, their merits and the leadership had, had borne out um, a lot of success, but the, the prices just got obliterated. Everybody left them for dead. You know, it's kind of similar to what you were describing. I think that's an enormous, enormously... Um, profitable field to go hunting in because you don't have to make huge bets on something speculative and what may happen, what may not happen. It's already kind of been proven out to you. It's just, you get a, a bite at it at a whole new price. Um, so those are some areas that I would highlight. I think it's a fantastic framework and hopefully a, a concept or a thought that people can ingrain beyond just the the narrow nerdy concept of baseball and fantasy baseball. Yeah, I agree. And Elliot, I think you talked about the post-hype uh, sleeper at one of our conferences uh, a few years ago. I don't know. Which, I don't remember which company it was in relation yeah, with Grubhub to Grubhub last uh, spring. Okay, spring of twenty nineteen, to be clear. Yeah. So that's that's a great setup. I've I've looked into it. I don't know if you would put Twitter into that camp. Maybe starting to come out of that camp, but uh, I think um, so. Yeah. Just in terms of kind of what I would look at, a few setups, if you will. I mean, Twitter, for me, is clearly one of those setups where it's under-monetized. It has the the usage, the uh, engagement, and, and so forth, but it's under-monetized, and people are too focused on the financial numbers, and they're not focused enough on the engagement numbers or the the sheer user numbers, um, you know, so that's a, that's a great setup that I think at some point you had that with Facebook, at, at, at an earlier point you had that with Yahoo, where basically these companies were building engagement and they hadn't turned on monetization yet. And uh, paradoxically, the market just does not have a lot of imagination when, when it comes to to that, even though it's not that hard to turn on. 
I mean, how hard has it been for Twitter to make its ads more relevant? You know, I'm seeing a lot more relevant ads from Twitter in the last couple of months. And, uh, you know, they they couldn't get it done for a while, but just um, fundamentally, it's something that's doable. You know, it's not like going to another planet. So I like that setup. Um, another, another setup that I like, um, you know, kind of going beyond technology to maybe an area that's closer to home for, for you guys, investment management. You know, how often have we heard that the time to back an investment manager that you think has a good strategy, is smart, has the right philosophy, is when that person has had a period of underperformance? And then comes the period of underperformance and then everybody runs away and says, well, no, but he's really lost it. Well, maybe, maybe not. But one one name that comes to mind right now is uh, David Einhorn. I think super smart guy. Clearly his style has been (laughs) out of favor. But, you know, here's a guy and you've got the publicly traded vehicle. He's got a publicly traded vehicle uh, with Greenlight Capital Re. And I'm not recommending it. Do your own research and so forth. But this thing is now trading below seven dollars a share and it's got um tangible book value of about 11 and um you know there's a good chance that at some point um einhorn's um fortunes will turn and uh you know that may come sooner rather than later because the discrepancy between value and and tech uh valuations has never been higher and um you know when that happens you're not just going to have performance um, come back for for green light, but the discount uh, would likely close as well. And then I'll just mention one one last thing that I also kind of like. Um, it has to do pretty much with cyclicals, um, where there's a commodity type business. Um, you know, one example where you really have a very strong trend to um, reversion to the mean is um, refining and refining margins and those stocks just tend to get completely crushed uh but refining capacity isn't going up and you know that at some point those margins will reverse and then the stocks just rebound really really big maybe it's tough to say on the timing front so that's why you know you get those kinds of opportunities but when the turn comes it's really pretty violent and there's a lot of examples now in the broader oil and gas sector as well of actually really good businesses um, totally crushed. And the one vector that would just unleash huge value is just if the oil price rebounds. And, uh, you know, so these companies got crushed through no fault of their own, so to speak. Uh, They're being well run. They're allocating capital in a smart way. You know, some of them, obviously. And then you just get this one variable uh, to reverse, which, you know, in all of history, it's always happened. Now, you could say this time is different, and it might be because of just the trends we we have in um, renewable energy and so forth. So that makes it tougher. But when you have a good company where there's just, a, you know, a commodity price as one vector, and that commodity price has reliably oscillated, at some point, it'll oscillate to the upside, and and those tend to be good uh, opportunities as well, in my experience. Yeah, what do those you guys are think all really of, good ones. What do you What do you guys have as uh, 
ways to avoid mistakes in the area or, or how do you evaluate whether it's a post-hype sleeper or whether it's just a busted initial thesis, which is one, I guess if I had to pick my favorite again, it would be something where you had a bankruptcy that was forced on the company through no fault of its core commercial proposition. So, uh, you know, a, a broken capital structure, a funding crisis, uh, you know, some sort of legal problem that doesn't, you know, reflect poorly on the business itself, because there, in a lot of cases, you can buy from four sellers, you have an ability to have some downside protection wherein you're getting cash or reliably monetizable value that covers, if not all, at least a big chunk of your purchase price. And then you're getting a lot of the upside and potentially, you know, the reorganized entity and the equity there for, for very little or next to nothing. I mean, it, it, it's obvious, right? I mean, it makes total sense that the, that would be an attractive setup. It's easier said than done to find those. But if you're just looking at other situations where, you know, maybe it's an equity or maybe it's, something like that where it's just a company that's stumbled how do you how do you avoid throwing good money after bad when the market's saying this isn't working anymore so yeah i got a two-part answer to that but first got to make a baseball correction mike trout actually was sent down before he became a superstar oh um, uh, yeah sorry i you're probably right about that i shouldn't have he was sent him down out, but... for a 39 year old jason isringhausen to make room for one more bullpen arm but it's just like it's kind of easy In his after rookie... In his rookie year, he was sent to. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say A Rod because I'm pretty sure when A Rod was, when he broke into the major leagues, I don't think he was ever sent down, right? But then I said, yeah, he's he too came old up and, and mashed, and people won't know who he is. And Mike Trout's probably the best baseball player of his <laughs> generation. But anyway, good, good clarification. Goes to show how after like eight years, a certain narrative just kind of takes hold. And it, I, I thought that at first too. And then I was like, wait, I actually blew this because I had him on my fantasy team and dropped him when he got sent back down because he wasn't ready yet. <laughs> mm. And that one still burns to this day. So, you know, these, these kinds of things do happen. Um, so on, you know, how to avoid getting burnt in the post-type sleeper. Um, I think for me, one of the keys is step one, I, I've built in. I think a degree of protection in what I'm identifying as a post-type sleeper. So I think that step about uh, rising intrinsic value despite a declining stock price is um, very important to establishing a margin of safety. I don't want to get involved in a company who's actually, you know, hit real problems. I want the problems to be predominantly in the land of sentiment. And now the problem that comes from that is uh, sentiment can become its own vicious cycle, especially in these younger companies where like talent retention is key and stock price is key for that and the narrative. And so once the stock price reverses, you get some sort of brain drain. Um, but I want to make sure that when I'm stepping into a post-type sleeper that there is and has been consistently rising um, intrinsic value. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll be wrong on uh, what my IRR could look like over five years, but I want to make sure that in five years, I, I have a high degree of confidence that the company is worth more uh, than, than it is today. And then I guess the second element that I look for is like constant reevaluation of the thesis and making sure that there's one key variable I can isolate on that is like the biggest uh, sign at the intersection of the qualitative and quantitative that the business is working still. Um, and pay attention and make sure that there's no like real change in the inertia of that one key variable. Um, so that's designed to monitor the intrinsic value rising. Um, but it's, it's something that, you know, I think that's the, the process as things move to 
uh, stay attuned to whether you're you're right or wrong. Um, that's how I think about it. How, how how about you? I mean, does that make sense? Uh, what what would your framework be looking at these kinds of companies? Should I jump in? Yeah, um, please. Jeff. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think I can add more, much more than Elliot. I mean, you're the kind of the guy on on this uh, setup. I would say, yeah, it, it, you got to look to metrics other than the stock price, and you know those metrics have to be going in 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 an opposite direction. Um, just a couple of examples I'm thinking of now that to me seem like they actually may not be uh, post type sleepers in the sense that they may not recover um, in terms of their their value, um, Yelp or TripAdvisor. You know, those companies, they had the hype, now they don't, but I also feel like their intrinsic numbers aren't really going in the right direction. You know, Yelp just feels like it's becoming less relevant. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I used it at some point, but it just feels like they're not really going to be relevant in the future. Now, I may be missing some niche, um, you know, use cases for it. So I, I think, Elliot, you said it the best. Uh, I'm just trying to throw out a couple of examples. And if you disagree, I'd love to hear. Uh, uh, whether... Those are perfect ones. Like, right on. Yeah, the only thing I would say, too, is... Um because I think my setup was biased towards things where you could buy it cheap from a for seller looking more fundamentally at the business is, is certainly the key for me. I would try to make sure there's a balance sheet there to absorb some of the shock. So if, you know, the stock price is cratered, try to keep that out of your mind and, and just realize that, you know, there, there's a balance sheet here to support this business. And like you said, is, has the business itself made any progress? Is the business itself grown? Has it shown that it's producing more value or more customers interacting with it? You know, what what do the people that have interacted with the company in the past have to say about it? Just take a owner's mentality about it and ignore the ignore the business. It's not going to be perfect, but if you can at least avoid the um the post-type sleepers that have really poor, you know, short-term unit economics and are burning a lot of cash and don't have the balance sheet to support themselves, I think that just you get a lot of problems out of the way right there. Yeah, you know, and you got me thinking, I should add one more element, which gets at the company, how how the company that I presented here resolved because it wasn't great at first um, and then was an okay outcome in the end. But one thing I look for in these kinds of, uh, in this setup is a company whose existence is strategically significant to someone. So that's potentially there with the two bad examples in TripAdvisor and Yelp. So if it goes wrong, that could have been some degree of defense on the uh, on the way. You know, uh, Grub ended up, you know, being first Uber was going to buy them, and then Takeaway came over the top. So there was some strategic significance that worked for someone. And um, you can't always identify that there will be a sale at the end of the day, but you could identify that there will be interested purchasers if things don't work out uh, as you hoped. Um, so that's one one more thing I looked at, um, and it's kind of like consistent with with Phil how you how you look so intently to the balance sheet for that. You know, it's kind of its own uh, form of like uh, more tangible value in that sense. Can I just throw out something? Since Phil, you talked about the capital structure and the balance sheet, and you're the expert in this, but I've looked at a couple of situations recently that 
seem intriguing and I'd love to get your kind of initial hunch. Um, so there's this um, offshore driller, they're the leader called uh, Transocean, you know, biggest uh, backlog in the industry, really good assets for that uh, industry. Um, and in rough numbers, about 20 billion tangible book value, 10 billion of that is, uh, sorry, 20 billion in tangible assets, 10 billion is uh, equity, 10 billion is debt. And the debt now trades at about 20 cents on the dollar. So, you know, you're, if, you, if the equity is going to be worthless and you're getting basically the company for $2 billion on of $20 billion in assets and it's the best company in the industry, that kind of seems a bit interesting to me. Yeah, I haven't looked at it. I mean, I used to know a little bit about the industry years and years ago, uh, fully a decade ago now, I guess, almost. Um, I guess what I would say is, yeah, I, I don't understand situations like this where anyone would necessarily want to make a big bet on the equity because it's clearly being implied by people who have done some work and have real money at, at stake that the the equity is worthless. And so, again, you don't want to take the the market price action as the end-all be-all response by any stretch of the imagination is, but it also implies just a kind of a level of greediness that's somewhat unrealistic because if the debt's trading at 20 cents and it proves not to be the fulcrum and the equity recovers something, you still will have gone from 20 to 100 uh, or something better than 100 on your debt. So you still would have made multiples of your original capital and you ought to be pretty pleased with that. I mean, you can always buy bolts. You can look at all the trade claims, you can see where all that kind of stuff is trading. But um, clearly, the base rate of companies that have debt trading at 20 cents on the dollar generating any recovery for the equity holders would be infinitesimally small, like, you know, very, very, very rarely yeah. ever happens. So, um, but, yeah. you know, look, there are also other things to consider too. I mean, the 20 cents level implies lots of potentially uh, hidden liabilities, at least from the surface. I mean, I do remember from being involved with some oil and gas properties, less on the rig side a little bit, but um, there are just massive costs to these properties um, in the physical plant and keeping them up. So, you know, make sure that you really look at it and, and decide is this, you know, an asset where, you know, once the bankruptcy case is resolved, potentially, could these assets be redeployed quickly or are they going to take many, many millions of dollars in um, real cash spending to to then ever start generating any sort of economic return again, because that's often the case uh, in these bankruptcies. So, Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I was definitely thinking about this in terms of buying the, the debt and uh, yeah. assuming that the equity gets wiped out. There was another case, though. I mean, a friend of mine the other day brought up a, a, a retailer here in the U.S. that is filed and... Um, I hadn't been paying attention to it. It was a pretty small company um, Tuesday morning. And again, I'm by no means recommending anything here. Uh, so please do your own work. But the interesting part that got his attention was that the judge had granted an equity committee. That's something we talked about before. The equity had been you know, struggling for years. The company had been struggling for years and the pandemic came along and kind of finished it off. But um, it actually filed with no financial debt on the balance sheet. So lots of leases that and they're trying to reject some of those leases in bankruptcy. But, you know, if you squint really hard, you could see some potential equity recovery there. I think it's still 
pretty unlikely in a lot of cases. But the granting of the equity committee is what got his attention. What I had to explain was that, you know, that could well be because management's done something wrong and management has violated its duties as it entered or was clearly in the zone of insolvency. So a lot of times the judge will grant that equity committee as a way to kind of slap management on the wrist. It's not meant to necessarily imply that the equity holders in the case have any sort of uh, claim or any hope of retaining any value there. But, um, you know, it's an issue. But I mean, the stock there went from 20 cents or something shortly after it filed to 80 or 90 cents now. I mean, it's clearly gone up. You saw all kinds of crazy stuff happen earlier this year with Chesapeake and Hertz, um, where the common stocks of those companies both traded up dramatically after they filed bankruptcy. In one case, Hertz tried to sell equity to the public after it had filed and declared that its shares were very certainly going to be worthless and that we're going to sell you more shares anyway. I mean, it's just bizarre stuff. So you, you just can't ignore economic reality when you get into these situations. You know, what's interesting to me also is that when you look at um, these quote unquote distressed equities that are trading at, you know, huge discounts to uh, book value or at a fraction of book value, you know, some of them will have their bonds at like 20 cents, like the cases with Transocean, but some will have bonds that are trading at par, basically. And uh, yeah, that can be a good sign. I mean, I would say, yeah. As a rule of thumb with a, you know, with a base rate in the 70, 80, 90% range. So by no means is it foolproof, but it's a good initial um, stake in the ground to start doing some work is that if you see the credit price lead the way down. So if the bonds start getting weak or they trade at a very distressed level, like you said, um, that's generally because some people that have limited upside and lots of risk have decided that there's a big problem here. And in cases of financial distress, it's very often true that the credit is either the first to smell trouble or the sharpest investor in the room. And so the most informed and the, you know, generally doing the best work. If it's the other way around, which you see, you know, sometimes it's it's more rare, but where you see, you know, the equity absolutely get destroyed and the bonds are trading at par and you can kind of work into what that means in terms of interest coverage and and overall financial health for the for the business that can be a very attractive way i mean i would certainly feel way more comfortable making a bet on a dis, quote unquote distressed equity or a levered equity where you know the the credit markets had sort of deemed the balance sheet to be somewhat healthy and it had bonds trading you know in the 90s as opposed to you know, some absolute shoot for the stars kind of situation where the, the distressed equity, yeah, sure. Could there potentially be value there? But you're talking about, you know, one in 50 or one in a hundred, one in a million kind of odds to actually ever get there when the bonds are, you know, already beaten up for good reason. Yeah. I'll just mention one name and this is by no means a recommendation, but just uh, in case uh, people want to do some research, um, this uh, Brazilian aircraft maker Embraer, it's, it's viewed as a fairly high quality company in Brazil and so forth. Got ab- absolutely crushed on the equity side this year, uh, but the bonds or the debt is trading uh, pretty much at par. Yeah, and I wonder in that case, I've done no work on the company, so take this for what you're paying for it. I, I wonder there if it's the case, as you often see with some of these companies, it can be, and it can be economically rational to say, right, that the company should be allowed to basically file for bankruptcy and restructure and have the equity wiped out, but you can't allow the pain to go further up the capital structure than that because you'd basically crush the entire supply chain. Um, Because if you allow the debt and the vendors to take big giant haircuts, it almost becomes an issue of uh, national consequence. I mean, you could certainly have made that case for Boeing here in the US when I, I read a lot of, you know, 
press coverage around the 737 MAX. And then when the pandemic hit, you had a lot of people saying that a Boeing bankruptcy was sort of inevitable and you're going to have this haircut and that haircut. And it's like, you know, guys, if we've bailed out the banks and the automakers and stuff, we're definitely going to bail out Boeing. That's just a, you know, political reality in this country. And that Embraer is probably in, in roughly the same ballpark in Brazil. So that may be a reflection of the fact that people are just equating the the credit risk there with almost a sovereign level of, uh, of risk. Elliot, after those tangents, uh, anything else uh, that you had on your mind? Yeah, no, this stuff's interesting for me to hear about. I mean, I wonder, uh, you know, about some of these situations. I like watch from afar to see if I'll ever, you know, uh, pounce on anything was thinking when you were talking about Transocean a little bit about how like the Lowe's family, uh, the Tisch family uh, with Lowe's basically just, you know, let Diamond go bankrupt. It seems a little bit of an ominous sign, but I was thinking similarly to Phil on like Embraer being a bit of a national point of uh, pride. So you don't want the bonds to look too bad or there's incentive for the country to make sure it doesn't get too bad there. Um, one of the situations I found myself like scouring just this morning was uh, I, I say probably a pretty similar setup with Rolls Royce, where it's now you know uh, predominantly their enterprise value is their debt, not much market cap left there, um, and they're going to be doing this rights offering, uh, or so it seems. That was like I, I kind of like stopped off the trail to prepare a couple other things. Um, but, you know, that's a situation that seems somewhat similar. They're a national champion of sort. Um, you know, I remember a couple of years back, it was uh, hypothesized that someone might be interested to acquire them, but the British government wouldn't because there's strategic reasons not to. Um, those have interesting consequences for people kind of sniffing around the equity and the debt um, in those kinds of situations. Um, so it's not exactly the kind of stuff in my wheelhouse setup I was talking about here, but I do, um, as a generalist, hop around and look at a little bit of everything. Um, so so these are some of the things that that have come up for me. Um, so I'd add a, add a couple of those thoughts. I don't know, is, is Rolls-Royce something either of you guys have looked at at this point? I've looked at it, but it's been years. I mean, I some really smart people have been involved there on the investor roles for a while. And um, I found it, on the one hand, very attractive. On the other hand, very difficult. I, you know, the accounting was a mess. The, the sort of corporate leadership and and culture and overall performance of the company was hard for me to really uh, wrap my head around and get excited about. And uh, then the, you know, now the pandemic's hit. <laughs> I mean, they're still trying to figure out the the Trent One Thousand. You know, the the wide body versus narrow body market debate is raging. The you know the long. I don't know what you'd call the next five to 10 years in terms of time horizon, but that's going to be tough in terms of the backlog. But, you know, you have a long tail of maintenance and um, it's certainly a, a national asset. So I'm with you on that. Um, and likewise, you know, to my point on Embraer, I don't mean to be too cynical. And there could be a very intelligent case to be made that says that, you know, because they're going to get some level of national support, you know, you're not going to ever get to the Machiavellian situation of allowing the equity holders to get crushed, but the credit holders to emerge unscathed. And so if you can just pinpoint the right level where you can bear some mark-to-market pain on the equity, you know that you've got some level of underlying liquidity support coming from the state. I think that's a difficult, difficult game to play. And I don't think it's really that bad, frankly, at, at Rolls-Royce. I haven't really looked at the balance sheet in any detail lately, but it could be interesting from that level too. 
Yeah, thanks, oh. Elliot. I hadn't looked at it either, but I do recall um, folks mentioning Rolls Royce in the past, making a pretty good case. Uh, I thought, um, you know, at a much higher price. So, yeah, thanks. I may have to go <laughs> go there to to get some pain. <laughs> Time for a little dumpster diving, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of pain, I have to point this out too because I find it so interesting. I looked up Mike Trout's. Uh, history here real quickly. So you're right. He did get sent down. He got drafted in 2010. He made his major league debut in 2011. He got sent down after a whopping 12 games and was sent all the way back to double A, but then he came back up later that year. And so this is 2011. But then what's even more interesting is that you could have drafted him in fantasy baseball the next year in 2012, but even in 2012, he started the year at triple A. So he did not break spring training with the major league roster in 2012, but he got called up April 28th of that year and then went on to win rookie of the year and post maybe the greatest fantasy baseball season in recent memory. And for as good as he's been, that rookie year in which he missed the entire month of April was his highest highest earning fantasy baseball year ever. So he's never had a statistically better year than the season in which he was the ultimate post-hype sleeper because he missed the entire month of April languishing in Salt Lake City at AAA. Um, so it's just <laughs> fascinating. I mean, he's the poster child of that. That's that's good. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's a great setup in fantasy baseball and in, in the stock market. I mean, Javi Baez was similarly, I mean... He was atrocious his first two stints in the big leagues. He couldn't even touch a fastball. And then, you know, even when he finally made the roster every day, the only reason he did was he played like seven different positions. So, you know, he was kind of everyone's backup, giving him enough playing time to appear like a regular. And then suddenly he blasted off from there. And I think, you know, I I mean, Trout, obviously, I, I don't know if there's as much to the story, but with someone like Javi Baez, there's something to be said about having a lot of resilience and a lot of different ways that you could get yourself chances to be right. You know, like when you're looking at a stock and the post-hype sleeper setup, like the more different ways that it could go right, the better off you are. And so for Baez, it was key just having a glove where he could kind of play any position on the field, um, having a little speed where, you know, no matter what late in a game, he had an opportunity as like kind of a speedy replacement on the base paths. Um, so just giving people excuses to give you one more chance, one more chance. I mean, that goes a long way. It's part of what I felt about Twitter when it was like deep in the turnaround doldrums. It was not so much, you know, it was it was a little bit of a turnaround for sure. But like, for the most part, you know, they had this core audience that wasn't going anywhere, which gives you a lot more chances to kind of experiment and get other things both right and wrong uh, along the path. And, you know, obviously with Trout, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was no sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say if Mike Trout's the single best example of it in baseball as a post-type sleeper, it was rookie of the year, first ballot Hall of Famer, potentially the best of his generation, and, and potentially one of the best fantasy seasons ever in a season when he didn't even get to play in the month of April. Basically, I was just looking at Amazon stock, which you know IPO'd in '97, went to a hundred dollars, and then the dot-com bust hit. And we're approaching the 19th anniversary, which I believe would be. Next month, sometime here in the month of October, um, you could have bought it for about $5.51 a share. It looks like the lowest <laughs> intraday split adjusted, but certainly in the single digits, you had an opportunity there for a few weeks or a few months. But even beyond that, you had a chance to buy it in the 
in the teens, you know, as opposed to a price now well over $3,000 for one of the best businesses that's ever, ever existed. So if Mike Trout in, in 2012 was the best ever post-hype sleeper, maybe Amazon in 2001 was the best ever stock of its kind in that regard. That's pretty amazing. That's phenomenal. I mean, I think it gets to the point, like a lot of people think this is all too easy to buy good companies and just, you know, kind of tuck them away. Uh, it reminds me of like um, Scott Kristoloff at Avondale uh, Asset Management put this post up. I think it was like, it was in 2013, uh, the, the 15 best stocks of the last decade and what extent of drawdown you would have had to um, realize at max to hold on to them. And like of the 15 best stocks, the biggest drawdown was 92% on the way to 1,000% um, returns for, it looks like it was win. The smallest drawdown was Sherwin-Williams at 42%. And the average drawdown was over 50%. So to hold anything really great, um, you had to be able to take some lumps along the way. So, I mean, you know, part of the post-type sleeper idea is you'd rather look at them when they're in the lumps and not have to deal with the, the worst of the drawdowns, but like, you know, even, even for Mike Trout to be uh, demoted for, for an end of career, Jason Nisringhausen had to have been a pretty terrible feeling. And just to stretch this analogy one more time, I hope we're not losing all of our non-sports listeners or any baseball, non-baseball fans that are out there, but I'll, I'll never forget it. And this, this does actually apply. So Bill James, most people are probably familiar with. He's sort of the, the father of advanced metrics in baseball and has gone on to really revolutionize the sport. And it's bled over into, you know, European football and, and all sorts of different sports. And he's been a paid advisor to the Boston Red Sox. It's very influential. There's also a guy in, in fantasy baseball. There's a couple guys, actually. Larry Schechter's written a, a great book on the subject and Ron Chandler um, was kind of one of the original godfathers of really applying quantitative thought and, and good rigorous analytics to fantasy baseball. And I think anybody that's interested in investing that would read one of their books or read some of the work they've done would be uh, floored at how much overlap there is between these areas of thoughts in terms of looking at businesses and investing in, in fantasy baseball. But anyway, I'll never forget that after Mike Trout's 2012 season, um, when he absolutely blew everybody away and posted this unbelievable season. Um, Ron Chandler, the next spring before the 2013 season, wrote this essay about how he thought Mike Trout was an unbelievable player. He thought he had the brightest possible future in front of him. And then he thought that almost certainly we'd seen the best ever statistical season that Mike Trout would ever put out. And he got ripped. Ron Chandler was called an idiot. They said, you're, you're missing the point. You know, Mike Trout's 21 years old or whatever he was, 20 years old at the time. And they're like, this guy is just getting started. He's definitely going to have better seasons. And his price in auction leagues in particular got bid to such insane levels that he hasn't returned a profit in a lot of fantasy baseball leagues that are auction denominated ever since. But Ron Chandler was exactly right. So if you look at what he posted in value in 2012, he's never exceeded that level yet again, ever again. He's come close. He came close in 2013. He came really close in 2016. He came close again in 2018. But Ron Chandler was exactly right that the best possible statistical year Mike Trout was ever going to produce happened that first year in his rookie year. And that's carried with him. And so the prices people are paying based on that first rookie year probably inflated his price tag in the market for the next five or, you know, maybe even longer year. I mean, it just has stuck with him ever since. But I just thought it was fascinating that, that Ron Chandler got absolutely torched for that, but he was 100% correct. It's interesting. I didn't realize that, that he peaked in uh, war per game in that year. By well, this wasn't war. This was, in, this was in fantasy value. I'd have to look on war. Let me see. I'm looking at war. He 
beat it by a hair in 2013, but he played okay. decently fewer games. But one of the interesting things that as I'm looking at this becomes clear, like his um, most of his stats, he outdid in other years, but the big variable that made him that much more very valuable in 2012 than the other years um, is he Steals. had way more stolen bases than any yeah, other year. Exactly. And that was Ron Chandler's point in this essay was like, guys, you know, you're just not going to see 49 stolen bases very often. And uh, he's exactly right. I mean, he's never posted more than 33, which was the next year. Um, so that was the core of his logic was that, you know, in fantasy baseball, just because of the arbitrary nature of the game, it's that steals matter and they matter a lot. And he was saying, you know, Mike Trout could go on to be an, ult- an absolutely awesome player, but he's ultimately unlikely to steal so many bases again. He was 100% correct and his value has reflected that. And Ron Chandler's prediction was absolutely correct, but probably very few people remember that. They just remember him as the guy who, you know, didn't like Mike Trout or whatever, all these crazy <laughs> narratives that. It's a tough tag to have stuck on you for so many years. Exactly, especially when you were correct, right? I mean, it's just it's bizarre. People don't like nuance. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm still here, guys, although I missed a lot of the discussion, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, sorry, it's a little baseball-centric. Um, yeah, I'll throw Billy Bean out there just to brandish my credentials. As yeah, I mean, look, he he would have never existed if it weren't for Bill James. So we're all kind of talking the same language. I should here. talk about the book MVP Machine one time for my little section because I think it's yeah. just awesome. And I like have more than once tweeted out one excerpt as the explanation for why growth uh, has outperformed value. But like, it was somewhat facetious, but I think it explains it so damn well. Um, and like, you know, how the league moved from Billy Bean, who is trying to buy assets for less than they were worth to kind of like, obviously we have a bit of history to kind of like revise how we think about this, but to the Astros model, where it's really a growth mindset about their players, identifying traits where they could kind of accelerate the value creation in specific vectors, you know, a very different approach toward um, value in players and building value, like a portfolio of value as a team. Um, so I feel like that would be an interesting one. I'm glad to hear that I got another baseball junkie out here. I uh, you know, always hard to know how far I should push down that path, but you know, I that love was baseball. the same guy that that wrote Big Data Baseball, right? Which is another, you know, yeah, about the Pirates. Movie. That was a great yeah, book. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you're into you know nerdy stuff, that's definitely a good one. Yeah, I find I I kind of get better ideas about the market. You know, reading another investment book, they're kind of all fairly similar. But when you read about it in baseball, it's kind of very similar. You know, with how it's it's very open ended too. So it's not just very narrow. Range of outcomes is pretty wide, and you know, you really. Uh, could think of both individual securities, so players, or like portfolios, how to build a team. So all elements are there. And just to kind of round out this discussion for folks that want to look up some stocks, um, you're in in European football. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of really smart clubs that uh, that apply analytics and so forth. And actually, I think the guys that own the Red Sox now own uh, Liverpool, Liverpool, Liverpool yeah, club um, in the UK. But a couple others that are publicly traded that that I think do this really well in terms of uh, building value internally with players or acquiring them really cheap and then selling them for much, much for multiples. Uh, one is uh, Borussia Dortmund, 
out of Germany, uh, ticker BVB. Another is um, a, a club in France. Uh, the name escapes me right now, but they do a really good job. They they made it all the way to the Champions League semifinal this year. Oh, PSG. Uh, no, it's a um, it's Lyon. Oh, Lyon this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, did really well, um, even though their budget is much, much uh, smaller than uh, than most other clubs. So there's definitely some some things to look at um, in the public markets for those who are interested. And uh, I know, like all the Malone junkies got to point out, uh, the Atlanta Braves are a publicly traded company and they have built a really nice crop of young talent, I think, taking, you know, pretty... Uh, value-oriented approach to team construction. We could do a whole segment on just sports economics for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's on. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Great discussion. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening as well. Looking forward to uh, talking to you guys next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.